lives. Many of the prophets lived hermit-like lives in the desert. They would sort of emerge to denounce the latest evil of society and they would declare some judgment upon the world as a result. But the most memorable prophets of Scripture are not those obscure men, but they are the prophets that we find living among the people who knew the names of the people, who walked the streets, who knew the lives and interacted with the people along the way. Elisha was such a servant of God. He was known by everyone from king to slave, from elderly to infant. Elisha was a likable fellow. Men as well as women would share their needs and he would enter into their concerns. Elisha is characterized by a phrase he learned from his mentor, Elijah. Elijah, you remember, was taken up in a chariot of fire. So now we're at Elisha. Elisha used this phrase over and over, and I think he seemed to have picked it up from Elijah. And it's the phrase, what may I do for you? You might think of it as, how may I serve you? In the King James, it says, what shall I do for thee? Elisha was a kind and neighborly man, busying himself with the problems of those he knew. And one of the things I like most about him is his willingness to impact the lives of young people. And you'll see what happens today with some interesting exchange, but in our study of young people of the Bible, that's how I dovetail into the life of Elisha. The first occasion of his interaction with youth in the Bible, I don't know if you've ever read this story, but it has the famous qualities of Washington cutting down the cherry tree. And from that lesson, you've learned many lessons of obedience and humility, and you've taught little boys and girls about how they shouldn't misbehave. The first story establishes Elisha's authority. It leaves a lasting impression as he is heckled by some contemptible Young people. They probably rang his doorbell at 3.30 in the morning and then notice what they did. 2 Kings chapter 2, go down to verse 23. And he went up from thence unto Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children. Now I'll, I'll say it again, but you'll see this phrase little children. When you see the phrase little children, you think of the Children that Jesus bounced on his knee when he said, Suffer the little children to come unto me. That's not this. These are students. These are high school, college students. So these young people, they mocked him and said unto him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, bald head. They're probably referencing Elijah that had just gone up in the chariot of fire. So they're saying, why don't you go up with your buddy Elijah, you bald-headed fellow? And he turned back, and he looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the woods and tear forty and two of the children. Yeah, you're right. You're like, what? What? And verse 25, and he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. You didn't see that coming, did you? 
right? Like, whoa, wait, what a minute? Now, first, to make a long story very short, other places in the Bible, the word that's used for little children here, it's translated young men. It refers to grown children. Certainly not the concept that, uh, as I mentioned, of little, little infants or toddlers. Secondly, these were students of a false prophet in the city. Keep in mind that Elisha had just witnessed the going up of Elijah in the chariot, so they're referencing their buddy, or his buddy, Elijah. Elisha has now taken the mantle, the scarf, the mantle from Elijah, places it over his own shoulders as a symbol of passing on the authority. Elisha then receives a double blessing of the Holy Spirit as he had requested of the Lord. And immediately, Elisha begins to be recognized as a prophet himself and to perform miracles. But my friend, if you're going to stand up and declare yourself to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, to pray, God, help me to be bold in my witness and my testimony, you are going to face opposition. I promise you, it won't be like Elisha faced, but you are setting yourself up for opposition. Jesus said, blessed are you when men shall revile you, persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, Matthew 5. And so the first thing we heard here was the bald-headed comments of these boys. Many years ago, when I was driving a, uh, uh, it was a big school bus, but it was a bus for church. I'd pick up these uh, Awana kids, and you'd pick them up from, you know, every, I'd bang on every door, I'd, I'd fill up a whole bus. In fact, I, I even had so many children, I started an Awana program in another church. So anyway, I had all these children, and one little girl was sitting behind me as I'm driving the bus, and she reached up her finger, and she said, Pastor Jim, how come you don't have any hair right there? Kids can say the darndest things, right? But I've always found, often found, I should say, kids can kind of place their finger on the one thing that maybe you can't see in your own mirror. You can't see it in your own reflection, but kids see it, right? Kids can kind of pick up on things you are maybe blind to. Well, the one thing I would never tolerate is blatant disrespect for adults, especially for I never did what Elisha did, turn around and curse the children and call down. Now, this was according, by the way, it was according to the law that he cursed them. Now, I don't know why the bears came out, but the Lord certainly saw fit to do that. Whether you're a parent or a police officer, there needs to be swift and certain punishment for misbehavior. Not more laws. Just enforce the law, right? As a parent, teacher, when young people are disobedient, there needs to be enforcement. By the way, where did these young men pick up this kind of language? Where did they witness this kind of attitude? It was from the parents and the other adults who were around them. These young men had followed Elisha out of Bethel, where they had been likely attending a religious school who had little respect for Elisha. Maybe you've heard this kind of conversation at your home. You've heard people talk about having roast. Nobody here, right? 
The children had heard their fathers say of the preacher, well, you know, he's no Elijah. The parents had criticized this new preacher's sermon, and the deacons could be overheard. We don't have deacons, so I'm not talking about you. And the deacons could be overheard teasing about his lack of stature when compared with Elijah. The children had only taken to extreme what they had heard from the adults around them. That's why parents, we in leadership, teachers, you can't give an inch because what do kids do? They take a mile, right? That's why the law said their blood was upon their fathers for not teaching them better. By the way, lack of respect for the man of God is, uh, is what was happening in Israel for which God said there was no cure. 2 Chronicles 36. Disrespect for the man of God was one of the key problems in Israel for which God said there is no cure. I'm certainly no Elisha, right? I'm not trying to make any comparison. And I'm not expecting to be treated with the honor of a prophet, but I believe you will not do your church any favor when you belittle the minister. So I'm preaching on my behalf. But you can even apply that to a Sunday school teacher, right? Say, well, you know, the the lesson this morning, Jack was, he was all over the place this morning. I don't know what he was trying to say. I mean, you're you're just not benefiting your church when you belittle the person who is handling the Word of God. Well, this refers to leaders, in particular those who handle the Word of God. Respect them in front of your children. The next young people we meet in reference to Elisha is with a weeping widow. Now go over a chapter to four, first few verses there. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. So this is a fellow unknown sort of prophet, at least a servant. And thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. So to pay off the house, my kids will now serve. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for How may I serve you? How may I help? Tell me what thou hast in thy house. And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. You've heard this story. So he said, Go and borrow the vessels abroad of all the neighbors, even the empty vessels, and not a few. And when thou art come into the house, shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full, So she went from him, shut the door upon her and upon her sons, who brought the vessels unto her, and she poured out, and it came to pass that when the vessels were full, so all the vessels, and not a few, were now all full, that she said unto her son, Bring me yet other vessels. And he said unto her, There are no more vessels. And the oil stayed, or it stopped. And she came and told the man of God, Elisha, and he said, Go, sell now the oil. So what's he doing for them? He didn't just provide a meal, he's providing income, now pay your debt, and live thou and your children from the rest. The woman's husband had been at least a servant to the prophets, if not a prophet himself. 
And for what it's worth, you might at least consider from that account that marriage of church leaders, which I'm very grateful for, is not forbidden in Scripture. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It is honorable in all things. This deceased prophet had a good reputation. His family is recognized now by Elisha. However, like many servants of God, this man lived and died in poor regard, at least in terms of the world's treasure. As a result, in particular his two sons, they end up enslaved now, or at least potentially enslaved by debt. We know the borrower, Proverbs 22, is servant to the lender. All of us need to be careful of sort of extending, overextending ourselves in debt. Solomon also told us that it's foolishness, same chapter, Proverbs 22 and other places. He said it's foolishness to co-sign for the debt of another person. On the other hand, James says your faith is of no value. When you see someone in need and you find a way, you, you imagine a way within your own resources to be able to help this person in need, your faith is of no value if you simply say to them, oh, go and be filled, I'll be praying for you. I often say to people, if you say you're going to pray for somebody and you can't do it in church, when are you going to do it? You know, just right then and there, drop what you're doing, pray with the person. See if you can help them in some way. Your faith is of no value. If all you can say to a person in need is go and be filled, I'll be praying for you this week. Notwithstanding, give them not those things which are needful to the body. James says, what does it profit? Your faith is in vain. And what Elisha now does for them is enabled by faith and he gives the widow and her boys a job, which I think is significant. Collect empty pots, not a few. It seemed like a meaningless task, but it confirmed the industry or the willingness of these boys to work. So evidently, she's able to draw upon the good reputation of her deceased husband. She goes around to her neighbors. She gathers up all the pots that she possibly can, brings them into her house, and you saw the miracle that took place. The prophet, in his plan, has given us two key elements to helping people in need. You ought to, you ought to remember this when you see a need, how you might be able to help. First... Elisha establishes the need to work. And he says, what do you have in the house? What kind of resources do you have? What kind of abilities do you have? What interests do you have? How can I find something that you already have access to and enable that in order to put you to work and meet a need? And so he put them to work with what they had. Maybe a budget, maybe a plan. You do no one a favor simply by paying a debt. Like when I was a youth pastor, I would raise thousands of dollars every summer for camp scholarships. But you don't just give scholarships to kids to try to get them to go to camp. Because if they go to camp and don't feel like they paid anything for it, how do you think the kid treated, acted, behaved when he got to camp? He had no appreciation, or she, had no appreciation for camp whatsoever because it was simply given to them. So you give them some things to do. 
You know, maybe memorize some scripture. Maybe rake leaves for an elderly person in the church. Maybe just stay after church every week and help, help the preacher, you know, pick up the trash and do some vacuum. I mean, just some little things. Just give them something to teach responsibility in this task as you attempt to meet a need. Clarity without responsibility, or excuse me, charity without responsibility accomplishes nothing long term. And although the flow of the oil is a miracle, I mean, you can't deny that. This is something quite unusual. God isn't going to work this way in every situation. But without the voluntary participation of the widow and her sons, it wasn't going to happen. You know the saying, give them a fish and you feed them for a, a day. Teach them to fish and you feed them for life, right? Some of you are shaking your heads. Some of you old timers, you know that kind of phrase. Don't give them a fish. Teach them to fish. And so the prophet says, I've not only enabled you to pay your debt, I've given you, a, I've given you something by which you can continue to now make money and pay off the needs of your life and live by it. The prophet Elisha now travels on to the next little town, and there he meets another lady. This is a wealthy woman. She's called a large lady, but it has to do with her, her wealth, not her girth. 2 Kings chapter 4, go on to verse 8. And so it fell on a day that Elisha passed uh, uh, to Shunman, where was a great woman. Now, it, it, it has to do with her money. And she constrained him to eat bread, and so it was that as often as he passed by, he turned into the reaper. So every time he came through this town, he knew that he was going to have hospitality provided for him by this lady. She said unto her husband, you know what we need to do? This is a holy man of God that passes by us. Let us make a little chamber. This is the first prophet's chamber. You've ever heard that term, prophet's chamber? This is the first prophet's chamber in the Bible. You know, some churches have that. Maybe a, an apartment, you know, up in the back of the church or something. So anytime a missionary comes through, he can stay, or traveling through, he has the opportunity to be cared for. So we're going we're gonna to put this on the wall. This is up on the, on the rooftop. Let us set for him there, what? A swimming pool? What, what does he need? What does a minister need? A bed? I mean, it's just practical stuff. Let's give him a bed, a table, right? He's going to do some studying, so that'll make it easy for him. A stool, a place to sit, and a candlestick. That's it. And it shall be when he comes to us that he shall turn in thither. So we got a place for him to say, and it fell on a day that he came thither and he turned into the chamber and lay there. And he said unto Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite woman. And when he had called her, she stood before him, so in the doorway. She said unto him, Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. How may I serve you? Right? There's that phrase again. What is to be done for you? Wouldest thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? So I want to, you know, what can I say on your behalf? And she answered, I dwell among mine own people. So that was not significant to her. And he said, What then is to be done for her? And the Gehazi answered, Verily she hath no child, and her husband is now old. We've, we've seen this play out how many times, right? In the barren woman, elderly couple, and God sees fit to give a child. It's a miracle. And uh, she stood there in the door, and he said, 
about this season, verse 16, according to the time of life, what's the time of life, Al? About nine months, right? You, you've just witnessed that. You've just been through it. And you shall embrace a son. And she said, O nay, my Lord, thou man of God, don't lie to me, right? Don't lie until I, don't, uh, what, are you making fun of me now? I mean, and the woman conceived, bare a son, and at the season that Elisha had said, about nine months unto her, according to the time of life, the word great of this woman is not her size, it is her wealth. To say at the end of verse 13, I dwell among my own people, if you've got another translation, it may simply say, my family takes good care of me. So I know I'm older, I don't have a lot, or she was wealthy, but, but she had a lot of family that was taking care of her needs. And as any good fundraiser will tell you, since I have that experience, I can get the attention of the man in the home. I can tell you my need. You can feel my heart and my burden. But if I can't reach the wife, the check won't be written. See, the wives just giggled on that one, right? This prophet's chamber isn't going to happen if the woman isn't picking up on it. And she perceives he's a godly man and wants to do something for him. So this woman had an idea. She agrees to build this first prophet's chamber. It wasn't much, a little chamber. It's all Elisha needed to carry out his ministry. Built on the wall, there on the housetop, it contained a bed, a table, a chair, a lamp. It's important that those who continually minister be able to find a place where they can minister and quiet themselves before the Lord. They don't need to be offered all the amenities of this world. They only need a place of rest and quiet. Whether it's a prophet's chamber in a church, or may I just add the hospitality of, of hosting one of our guests, whether it's a music group or a pastor or a missionary, of hosting one of our guests in your home. I think hospitality toward the man or woman of God is a way to invite God's blessing into your home, into your life. Opening your home in hospitality is not a recognition that you have the biggest house with the most beds. It's a recognition. When you extend that hospitality, it's a recognition that my house, my home, my car that I loan, my whatever, it belongs to who? Belongs to God. Well, as a result of her hospitality, Elisha asked what he might be able to do for her. She says nothing. I think hospitality grows greater in those who know godliness with contentment. You can read about it in First Timothy chapter 6. He talks about money there. Godliness with contentment. There's great gain. I've noticed that those who are discontent with what they have in this life never seem to have enough and certainly never have anything to share with anyone. I've spent my life in care for others and in the care of others. 
And I've always found that those who are willing to share are those who are most content with whatever they may have been given in this life, and they graciously share in what they have as it belongs to the Lord. I, I remembered suddenly a, a story when my wife went, I feel like it was in one of the adoptions, and I think it was Lynette that said this. And I remembered with the four kids at home and my wife gone in the adoption process, and uh, we were kind of dependent upon others, you know, as the people in the church brought meals. And the kids would always ask, you know, what are we having tonight? And I said, I don't know. Somebody's bringing it. And I don't know if it was Lynette, but I, I think the phrase was said, I, I feel like a puppy dog. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? She said, it's like we're waiting on other people to bring us food. I spent my life in that. I've seen the graciousness of people. It never, or at least seldom, comes from the people with the most. It always comes from the people with the biggest hearts, the most gracious spirits. You see the prophet's compassion. He gives her, offers to her what money cannot buy, right? It was a gift worthy of her stature, he offers to come and stand before the king or the captain. But now she's brought before the prophet himself, standing there in the doorway as was the custom. Having freely given what she had, she receives in return what she didn't have, what money could not buy, that which she had given up on ever having long time ago, and that was having a child. God, 2 Corinthians 9, talks about a cheerful giver. And you read that. God loves to reward the cheerful giver with that which money cannot buy. I would dare say that the need in most homes and the thing of your heart's desire has little to do with money. A little more money isn't going to solve it. A little moonlighting to make uh, extra money probably won't satisfy the need. And yet, in an effort to numb the pain of our life, we strive for just a little bit more, and as a result, we miss out on the one thing that God is trying to give us because we're trying to pay our own. Far too many Christians have missed the blessings of God while they work to get ahead and can't understand why they just continue to fall further behind. It is foolishness, Luke chapter 12. It is foolishness to lay up treasures for yourselves on earth while being bankrupt in relationship to God. Well, the rest of the story you can read on your behalf and you'll discover the child dies. You didn't see that coming. Why would God allow that to happen having just given this wonderful blessing? The woman rushes to find Elisha. Elisha comes and restores the child. A similar thing happened in the life of Elijah. But this is Elisha. When you recognize what you have is a gift from God, when you have a problem with this thing, where are you going to go? To God. Right, Ruth?
to God. But when you don't recognize that what I have is a gift from God, you're going to turn to every other thing to try and find a solution to the problem. She runs to the place. She tells her servant, drive with haste and don't stop unless I tell you. In fact, if I tell you, don't even stop. They're rushing with a team of horses to get to the servant to find help for her need. This was life and death, of course, but perhaps your child needs to be saved. Maybe your home needs to be rescued. Maybe something just seems out of balance and you feel like you're losing the battle. Find a way to begin inviting the blessings of God into the circumstance of your life. It might be through hospitality. It might be through, you know, your regular giving. It might be through more prayer. It might be in scripture reading. Find a way to invite the blessings of God into the circumstance of your life in recognition that it belongs to God. You can't fix it on your own.